Welcome to This Week in Sustainability. My name is Felicia Etzkorn. I'm at Virginia Tech. My co-host is Jamie Ferguson from Emory and Henry College. And today we have a guest speaker, Anthony Flacavento from Southwest Virginia um, near Abingdon, Virginia. And he's an organic farmer. Jamie? Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, it's January 3rd, 2021. Hoping for a good year. Anthony Flacavento has been uh, in Southwest Virginia for over 30 years. He's a passionate advocate for the rural progressive renaissance of America to return to sustainable land use practices and robust local markets. Uh, he founded Appalachian Sustainable Development, which Emory and Henry College students uh, interact a lot with and learn a lot about uh, the intersection of community service and entrepreneurship and businesses that actually serve their community. Um, so we thank you for that, Anthony. Anthony ran for Virginia 9th District Congressional seat in 2018. And some of our listeners may be familiar with him from the over 100 town halls that he held during that time. Other people might be familiar with him as a farmer at the Abingdon Farmers Market. Um, I tend to have something of Anthony from Anthony's farm in my refrigerator at most times of the year because it is really good produce. Uh, so Anthony is passionate about soil health, and he's here to talk to us today about soil organic matter and about the nitrogen cycle and the carbon cycle and how uh, how industrial agriculture uh, is is throwing off the balance of both of those cycles. We've been talking in a few past episodes about uh, nitrogen fixation and uh, how dependent our uh, our agriculture is on uh, nitrogen and how um, artificially being able to take nitrogen from the air and uh, fix it into fertilizer has has really enabled a lot of uh, population growth, but also kind of thrown things off balance. So we'll spend some time thinking about that today. So Anthony, I'll let you take it away. So uh, thanks, Jamie and Felicia for having me on. I'm excited about this. Um, I've been farming on a very small commercial scale now for about 25 years. And a lot of good things have happened for uh, local, the local food system during that period of time. Uh, farming is today, as it's always been, a real challenge. Um, but nevertheless, one of the more recent developments within the world of, of farming, both people who raise fruits and vegetables like me, but also grain farmers, and um, ranchers, people who raise beef cattle, dairy cows, hogs, chickens, all of that, is a growing recognition that basically the same set of practices that build strong soil, uh, fertile soils, soils that help store nutrients for the farmer's use, as well as soils that resist drought, all of those same practices are pretty much the ones that help pull carbon out of the atmosphere and store it in the soil. So this relatively recent recognition by the general public, including some legislation at state levels to encourage these practices is one of the most exciting developments because we, we often find ourselves, it seems in conflict between goals of being productive on the one hand and ecologically sustainable on the other. But in this case, the same array of practices makes for more productive farms, potentially more profitable farms, and 
uh, helps with our climate imbalance, our carbon imbalance that is that is fueling climate change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I wanted to to talk a little bit about the about what the what the carbon footprint is of industrial agriculture uh, as it is most commonly practiced, um, just to kind of set the stage and let people you know have a sense of what the impact is of food grown in a business as usual way. Right, right, right. So there's really two sources of, right, right now, agriculture on the whole, globally, and in the United States, is a net contributor of carbon. So while some carbon is being pulled out of the atmosphere for plant metabolism and soil microbes, overall, farms are emitting more carbon than they're absorbing. So right now, on balance, um, agriculture as a whole, and particularly industrial agriculture, is part of the problem. Um, And there's two main sources of that. The smaller one, the one that a lot of consumers think is the biggest issue, is the so-called food miles. So as you may have seen different studies say different things, but in the US right now, the average bite of food has traveled somewhere around 1,750 miles before we stick a fork in it and eat. That is a significant contributor because of all of the emissions uh, in that transport, not to mention the cooling, the freezing, the processing and all of that. So it is significant, but the truth is that the food supply chain is pretty efficient too. So when those tractor trailers go from central California to Southwest Virginia to deliver, they are packed to the gills. So the emission per pound of food, while significant is actually relatively small. So that's important. Reducing food miles will help us reduce the carbon footprint. But the bigger source by far is the actual agriculture production. And uh, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy about 10, 12 years ago documented that difference. Anthony, does that include the, all the machinery or is that a separate issue? No, that would be everything used in food production. So the diesel tractors, um, the cooler, you know, I've got, a, I've got a cooler room on my farm, so it's, it's very efficient, but we use electricity, so it's everything. But again, even within the realm, so we, we've got two basic sources, uh, the transport of food and the production of food. The production is much bigger issue. Within the production, although we do have a lot of um, internal combustion engines that are churning away to run our farms and and run our cooling rooms. The truth is, again, it's more the heart of the production practices. And that comes down to that overall, we are losing carbon from our soil. We've been losing carbon from our soil for well over a century. In fact, the estimates vary, but right now, most studies you'd look at would say that overall, we've lost between half and 70% of our soil carbon over the last century. That's an extraordinary amount. That is a very big part of the climate imbalance. Yeah. So so this carbon, most people think of carbon in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide and and then, you know, more sophisticated that it's also methane and and some hydrofluorocarbons and things like that. Um, coolants. We talked about refrigerants on one of our earlier podcasts. 
But the soil carbon is a, a different matter. We're, we're really talking here about some complex molecules in, in the soil carbon. Are these, is it mostly microbes that we're talking about, like bacteria, soil bacteria? There's a good bit of stored carbon in the living fraction of the soil, the, the bacteria and the fungi, but most of it is the, the process of photosynthesis is using carbon. Carbon, I, the way I like to think about it is um, nitrogen is like protein for us and carbon is like carbohydrate. That's a kind of a simplistic comparison, but it's a reasonable way to think about it. So when the plants are growing, they need both nitrogen and other elements, but they also need that carbon. Um, and, the, and the process of photosynthesis allows them to take that carbon, convert it into the tissue, and then some of it moves through the plant roots and actually out into the soil. If if we harvest all of the plants, if we strip the soil of all the corn stalks and all of the wheat and all of the vines um, and utilize that for whatever food or animal feed, then there's still carbon that's being entered into the soil through the roots. And the, the roots are feeding soil bacteria and fungi. So either way, now of course it's better to leave some plant mass on the surface of the soil. But the, the, again, the studies show that soil carbon, that means the carbon actually in the, the bacteria, the fungi, all the microbes, the earthworms, and in complex molecules themselves, that is far more than all of the plant matter on the surface. All the agricultural plants, even all the trees in the forest, don't collectively hold as much carbon as what's in the soil. So soil carbon is this gargantuan storehouse. It's a gargantuan sink for carbon. The problem is that the, the frequent tillage, um, the lack of returning organic matter from plant residue, um, the movement away over a number of years from planting cover crops, uh, a lot of bare soil, all of those things have led to metabolizing carbon. The, when you are constantly tilling, when you're leaving the soil bare, you are metabolizing carbon and it's leaking out of the soil and going back up into the atmosphere. So what we have begun to do and what we need to do much more of is adopt agricultural practices that, um, that hold that carbon. And, and even within soil, maybe we'll have a chance to talk about this. There's really two distinct, not types, but two distinct levels of carbon. There's carbon in the the rhizosphere, the root zone, which is extremely important for plant health and the nutrient density of the plants or the animals that eat the plants. It's extremely important in a number of ways, but it's less stable than the carbon that's below the root zone that's down between three and six feet, between one and two meters of depth. That deep soil carbon we're finding out is incredibly important for storing because the carbon, while we want lots of organic matter in that, in that shovel depth, that root zone, that's essential for the farm. It's still, while it's stable, it's not that stable. So eventually that, that organic matter does get basically consumed by both the, the plant roots and the microorganisms and is volatilized or mineralized back into the atmosphere. So the real trick to using the soil 
as a storehouse for all that carbon we got to get out of the atmosphere is to get it down into that deeper soil layer. That's the really uh, challenging but important part. So this is where we need a chemist, which I'm not, but also it's where the research is just wide open and kind of exploding. What, what seems to be the case is a couple of things. One is the more organic matter you can load in that root zone, that top 12 inches, top 16 inches. Again, all the better for the plants and the consumers, but some of that, especially in rainier climates like ours, is, is dissolved and goes down into the deeper zone. So putting a lot in the first 12 to 16 inches does mean that you're gonna get more opportunity for some of that to leach down into the deeper, deeper zone, right? I'm trying to get a visual you know, picture of what these molecules would look like and what the whole process looks like. So I, this would be things like fragments of carbohydrates or, you know, uh, fatty acids or, you know, just organic compounds that uh, are maybe soluble and stable enough uh, and maybe that they can move by some process of, I mean, they might be a lot of them soluble. Um, and so in the water table, you know, as it is depleted up here, what would these be? These, these would be sugars and fats and small molecules like that. Maybe what do you think? Again, you're you're right at the edge of the limit of my chemistry, Jamie. <laughs> so I can't say, but so it's funny because in in the world of um, of annual crop farmers, people who do grains and vegetables like me, it's a little different for folks who are running cattle on pasture. Uh, some of the same process, but we always think of humus, of organic matter which becomes humus, as being very stable because what we know is that to feed the the plant life and the microbial life for a healthy soil, you want both green matter, like fresh organic material, you want decomposing organic material that is not green, but is not fully decomposed, and you want fully decomposed organic matter, which becomes humus, right? And it's that humus that we tend to think of as being very stable because it holds nutrients much, much better than most other things. So if you add nitrogen fertilizer, organic or otherwise, if you have a lot of organic matter, you're more likely to hold on to that. You're more likely to hold on to phosphorus. Mm -hmm. But even so, that humus is still in the geological sense, it's not very stable. It's gonna be eaten up and it's gonna be, um, be consumed and then some of the carbon will be released. So that's kind of the extent of how I understand that. Now, I, when I was preparing for this talk, I read a really interesting study that you all as chemists might want to follow up on that said that the addition of a few key, um, it could be organic or inorganic, but a few key nutrients like sulfur and phosphorus really greatly enhance the ability of the soil in the deep later, deeper layer to uh, form these stable molecules with carbon, this what they call deep soil carbon. So they found that they followed the same set of practices, this was over five years, but on one set, they added some sulfur and some phosphorus nutrients. And they found that it really enhanced the ability of the deep soil to, to turn that 
uh, soluble carbon into very stable insoluble molecules. Um, and I don't understand the chemical pathways of how it does that, but that's some of the information. So it looks like the soil chemistry down below the roots is really important. I'm, I'm curious um, who, what, uh, what researchers are, or maybe we could point listeners to a paper or a, or a research group that you follow, um, you know, related to deep carbon. Yeah. So one of them is, so I've read a number of papers and I can't cite them right off, but one institute that's pretty interesting is called NEON, which is, it's a U.S. government. It's called, it's the National Ecological, um, maybe Observation Network. I think that's it. National Ecological Observation Network. And they're both monitoring and experimenting with different things related to our ecological assets, including soils. Mm, and that's an NSF project. Yeah, it's part of the National Science Foundation. Yeah. So that, that's an interesting place to go. A lot of research papers there. But the point, because I could very easily get in way over my head here, the point I'm trying to make is that certain additions, sort of strategic, small additions of certain nutrients seem to enhance the soil's biological ability to convert that carbon into more stable forms down deep. That's, that's what the research seems to be saying. Apparently the iron and the aluminum that's down in those deeper substrata of soil are the things that latch on to the carbon and form these stable molecules. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, so really that, that's the limit of my understanding, but that's, it's kind of encouraging. I just read a Nautilus article today. I, I just got it in my inbox. So I, I sent it to you, but it was too late to do anything about it. Um, but it's really interesting because they're talking about using agriculture, pl agricultural plants to fix carbon in the soil. But they, the, the, uh, the group that was doing this was at the Sock Institute. I actually did my sabbatical at the Sock Institute um, in California. And they're talking about doing genetically modified organisms, which a lot of the consumers don't like, but with the idea to create a more robust root system, a larger carbon mass in the root system, and also, the idea that they could use, um, get these plants to develop um, suberin, which is a, a polymer of fatty acids. It's basically, it's the main component of cork. Yes, and it has a hydroxyl group on one end and an acid group on the other, and then it gets linked to glycerol just the way fats do, but then it's linked at both ends so it becomes a polymer um and so it's it's a waxy substance that actually coats the plant parts and makes it less susceptible to degradation and so the idea is that that suberin component would actually help store more carbon in the roots and make it more stable um so i just thought that was it was just right to what you were speaking about. Right, and I also, 
read a paper where they were looking at plant breeding, not necessarily GMO plant breeding, could be, but plant breeding broadly to favor those um, varieties, those cultivars that did have deeper and more prolific root systems, because that is part of it. If you've got, if you've got a plant, let's say you're growing um, rye and the root system is mostly in the top foot and a half, well, it's still gonna, it's got a tremendous root system. I use rye as a winter cover crop. Um, but if you could get fine varieties or developed varieties where that root system goes down to three and a half and four feet, then the, both the die off of the roots and the interaction between the roots and the microbe, you're gonna be putting a lot more carbon down deep. Yeah, and, and cultivation would be a, a perhaps better way than genetic engineering. I think a lot of people just feel like there's such urgency to the climate problem that, you know, speeding it up, I, I have mixed feelings about it. You know, people want to make a profit off of genetically modified organisms. And so that, that drives so much sort of misbehavior as far as I'm concerned. Um, but, but my favorite writing on, on genetically modified organisms is Barbara Kingsolver wrote a, um, this, what was it, small, Wonders, uh, I might not have the title right, but it's a, a book of essays. And there was an essay in there about GMOs and it was it, so convincing that I've remembered it for 15 years, you know, it was just really meant a lot to me because her argument is that um, it, it's mostly about the monoculture and the monoculture is driven by the, the capitalist you know, drive to profit off of genetically modified organisms. But if they're developed by nonprofits with this goal in mind, the hard part is we don't know, um, because it happens so fast, we don't know how safe it is or- What the unintended consequences are. Exactly. You know, here's yes. the thing. I, I think a lot of this cutting edge uh, plant breeding, as well as some of the experiments around soil chemistry, it's all critically important because the stakes are so high and the time frame is so short, no question. But there is this gargantuan amount of low-hanging fruit, which is to fundamentally shift the agricultural practices on the surface of the soil. Because the, when you look at, for instance, the livestock practices and you follow the Savory Institute and what Alan Savory has been able to do to reverse desertification in parts of Africa. When you look at Joel Salatin and lots of his acolytes, including many in Southwest Virginia that have adopted these practices that um, are doing again, win-win-win solutions whereby by very carefully controlled mob grazing, by introducing multiple species, you're actually getting more animals per acre from a production standpoint. You're reducing the need for any external inputs because the eating and the manure stimulate so much growth. You're simultaneously, along with all of that, you're making the farm more drought resistant. You have multiple products for your market, eggs, milk, meats of all, you know. So when you start looking at the wisdom behind 
a suite of practices like what Joel and others have adopted. And again, several, several wonderful farmers right here in the Abingdon area as well. You start to think, my God, that, you know, who knows what the percentages of farmers that are using those practices really fully, but we know it's a small percentage. It's maybe five to 10% of all meat production in the country at most. So it seems to me that sure we can look at breeding plants with deeper roots. I think that's worthy, but the biggest focus should be shifting the practices on the surface of the ground as quickly as possible and using incentives to help farmers make those shifts. There, there's an analogous shift that needs to happen for those of us raising annual crops, you know, but that to me, the low hanging fruit. Anthony, uh, on that, on that note, um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, the about how you've managed to improve the soil organic matter content uh, in your in your farm soil, and you know just talk about because because you standing in front of a group of farmers and saying my soil organic matter went from one point nine percent to over five percent is data, and I think what we need is we need you know we need data for this. So is, is that, just talk about your, your experience as a farmer and also um, how you're trying to, to scale it. Um, so I, I've neglected to mention that Anthony uh, is also, uh, he also has a consultancy uh, called Scale, uh, Scale Inc. to basically my understanding is to scale up these practices and get more, get more people uh, doing it. Um, so yeah, how, how did you accomplish that and how do you tell that story? Um, and how are you working to scale it up? Sure. And just to clarify, Jamie, so scale, which is an acronym, the name of the business is sequestering carbon, accelerating local economies. Um, I do a lot of work around the country to help local communities, basically sometimes regions to build healthier food systems and stronger local economies, kind of a mix of food and farming on the one hand and broader economic development. Some of the same principles, but it's both of those. In my instance, I had started market gardening back in the early nineties in Abingdon. I had, I was going through a divorce. I had a very small place with a little plot of land, started raising some fruits and vegetables and selling it uh, through a tiny CSA. And then a few years later, Lori and I married and we bought an old tobacco farm in 1999. And when we were out there that first summer, we weren't yet living there, we were building a house, we took some soil tests and, or I took some soil tests and sent them to Virginia Tech. And we also had our first organic inspection. At that point, it was a state inspection. It was through the, the state um, agency rather than the feds at that point. So the the test came back with organic matter levels right around 1.9%, which if folks don't know what that means, in a clay soil, it means it's like a brick when it's dry and it's mud, mud, mud when it's wet. That's what 1.9% organic matter means. Very little organic matter to, to open up that clay and make that clay lighter. The soil, the organic inspector ended up passing us for organic inspection because we had had no, we could demonstrate that there had been no prohibited substances on the farm for three years, but very reluctantly because she literally, literally could not find an earthworm 
when she was digging in the soil. There was none to be found. So that was a combination of such a heavy soil and I think the fact that it had been a tobacco farm for generations, there'd been a lot of nitrogen fertilizer and fertilizers applied to it. As the organic matter declined, probably there was some impact of salts and maybe some acidification that came with too much fertilizer. So, so basically you could say we had something that was just a hair better than dead soil. So then over, since that time, but particularly really over the next about 12 to 15 years, we set about to improve the soil while we were growing and selling stuff. I mean, we immediately started selling, we helped to start the Abingdon market and started selling there. But our goal was always twofold, grow stuff that we could make a little money off of, but build the soil. And the basic way we did it was, was three things. One was cover cropping every chance we got. So in late September, early October, we would plant rye, and crimson clover or rye and hairy vetch and let that grow throughout the winter and mow it and plant into it only in mid to late May. So then we would do what's called, usually called strip tillage. So you would leave, so you would, you would till narrow areas where you could plant your seeds or your plants into. Uh, it's sort of a modified form of no-till, but since we're organic and we don't use herbicide, we couldn't spray it with Roundup or another herbicide to kill that mass. Now there's other ways that organic farmers can kill that mass. And there's something called a roller crimper, which is a huge barrel, heavy barrel with little nubs on it that will break the rye and the, and the clover. So anyway, in, in the summertime, what we would do is we would plant buckwheat, which is a very, very fast growing cover crop that also attracts honeybees like crazy and bumblebees. We also plant in the summer, something called um, Southern cowpea. And cowpea is a really vigorous plant. Well, anyway, what all of this combination of cover cropping every chance we could does is it attracts beneficial insects and pollinators it adds fertility to the soil, but it starts rebuilding the organic matter bit by bit. We also rebuilt the organic matter by applying a lot of compost. Compost we made as well as compost we purchased from local compost companies. And we also by um, putting a lot of organic mulches, whether it was hay from our own field or leaves from the fall, all of that in combination gradually with reducing tillage. When I first had the farm, I tilled way too much, but we've gotten to the point that we really minimize the tillage and we only till when we're tilling in um, a mass of organic material. So all of that together helped us over the period of about 15 years to go from 1.9% organic matter to about five to 5.5. So a more than doubling, almost tripling of organic matter in a decade and a half is good. I mean, it's, it's really good. So now the soil of course is full of earthworms. It's a good, got a good storehouse of nutrients. So we don't have to add that much in terms of additional nutrients. And even though it can still be muddy if, the, if it just rains and rains, basically it's also much easier to work because the organic matter allows water and air to move through the soil more easily. So that's, that's kind of how we've done it. And then of course, 
we don't do it anymore, but for many, many years, we did farm tours on our farm and lots of other farmers saw some of these uh, practices and, and I think have tried to adopt them. So I, I think of what no-till farming does as carb, organic matter that's exposed to the surface that's exposed to the atmosphere is going to uh, naturally oxidize and go back to carbon dioxide. And so if you're so if you're just turning over a new face of new soil and new organic matter all the time, that it's accelerating the return to carbon dioxide. Do I have that wrong? And I guess it would also it would kill a lot of um, a lot of the network of soil of a healthy soil ecosystem, which also the, the living organisms, I think of it as a net, all of the roots and all of the fungi, you know, their mycelium and everything. It's a big net and it's a big sponge. It's a, it's a big sponge for water and it just makes everything, you know, hang on a little bit better. Do I have that right as to why tilling is, is so bad for? Yes. So tillage does a, a number of things. First of all, you know, if you till at the wrong time, which it's really easy to do because farming is all about little windows of opportunity. And if, if you don't get your broccoli plants in in a certain sort of five or six week window, it's too hot for broccoli. So there's always pressure to prepare soil. And so if you're dependent on tillage and it's been wet, 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 and you till and it's still too wet, you create terrible clods that are really difficult for, for the farmer to work with and it's bad for the plant roots. Um, on the other hand, if you till when it's bone dry, it's just a dust bowl. And I've done that, just come in looking like a coal miner, you just get covered with it. So tillage itself is, is tricky in part because of timing. But, but the biggest thing tillage does in terms of carbon is it stimulates the microbes. So when you till the soil, particularly if there's a little bit of plant residue on the surface of the soil, and you don't immediately replace that with seeds of, of a new cover crop or new plants, the microbes go to town. It's like a buffet for them. And so they consume that organic matter and, and their respiration then releases some of that carbon dioxide, right? So that's why you wanna reduce tillage first and foremost. Now conventional no-till, which I think it's safe to say overall was still a good step. Now I'm, I'm not a fan of glyphosate and Roundup. And I think the evidence is mixed, but, but fairly strong that on top of what other health concerns glyphosate might raise for people, uh, glyphosate clearly has had some destructive impact on soil microbes. But on the other hand... And also also beneficial in insects. And beneficial insects, exactly. Nevertheless, no-till, I think, was a good transition strategy because what no-till replaced was vegetable row cropping systems where farmers were planting hundreds of thousands of cabbage plants and broccoli plants tilling the heck out of the soil, putting the plants in bare soil, and then probably continuing to use herbicide to keep the weeds down. No-till changed that so that they had this stubble, and that stubble meant that less soil was being washed away. Absolutely, it's clear that no-till reduced soil erosion, which is really important. And um, on, on top of that, I think that, you know, a well, a, 
a well-managed cover crop field, once it was killed by the glyphosate, you still had a lot of good organic matter coming from the root system that was feeding the microbes. So it was, there was good things. One of your former colleagues at Virginia Tech, Felicia, Ron Morse, was a kind of a no-till guru. He was an agronomist at Virginia Tech. And Ron spent the last several years of his career and then several years after he retired, developing no-till, organic no-till systems. So it was Ron who was one of the pioneers in figuring out ways that you could kill cover crops in place so you could plant in them without tillage, uh, without using an herbicide. And he made a big contribution to that. Cool. Yeah, That's yeah, great. He's a, he was great, great, great. So what would you say are the big differences between conventional no-till and organic no-till just to, just to summarize? So in both cases, they're, they're looking for cover crops that will get at the most biomass, so they'll smother out weeds. That's one of the big objectives. And in the case of an organic system, they're also especially looking for deep-rooted crops, which something like rye or cowpeas are. The difference is, since you cannot use an herbicide in an organic system, you're looking for other ways to kill that cover crop. And as I said, that roller crimper, this little thing that you drag behind a tractor, is one of the most effective ways. I've actually found on my farm, because I'm on a fairly small scale, that I can use old plastic. I'm talking about sheets of plastic that are maybe 50 feet wide and 100 foot long that were covering a greenhouse and they've gotten too old for the greenhouse. And now after I mow that cover crop, I put the clear plastic over top of it. And if we have two days of 70 degrees and sunny weather, it kills it all. It's amazing how the heat that the plastic transmits. So that's another little sort of uh, quirky way that you use the plastic as an herbicide, and it's a good way to recycle old plastic. I've been doing that for several years now. But however you do it, the organic farmer is looking for a way to kill the cover crop without an herbicide. And then the other very important thing is organic farmers are consciously looking for other ways to add organic matter. So a conventional farmer may be doing less of that. An organic farmer is going to be thinking about how can I get the manure from my barns? How can I make compost or bring compost in? Um, how can I supplement the cover crop stubble with organic mulches? So all of those things are part of the organic suite. Okay, so when people are thinking about compost for their gardens um, or their farms, tell us about what considerations uh, you should, should have for sustainability and versus productivity. How do people decide what compost to use? Uh, and are you are you asking about making compost or purchasing compost? I'm curious about uh, what are the most harmful practices related to where farmers get their compost and what you're most intentional about uh, in in how you source your compost. Do you make your own, or should it, you know, is there? How should people think about this who are lifelong farmers or even just you know gardeners just Right, right, right. So if compost is made strictly from plant materials, say leaves, sawdust, wood chips, grass clippings, old hay, it's not going to be really high in nutrients in NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. It will have them and it will be fertile, but well-made, assuming that it's well-made, meaning that 
it went through a heating cycle and down, which you do by getting the right mix of carbon rich materials and nitrogen mix rich materials and stirring it up all the time. If it's well made, a plant-based compost is, is an excellent addition for basically two things, for improving the soil quality, the tilth, opening up the soil for air and water flow for root, easy root penetration. Um, it's great for the microbes. It stimulates earthworms and microbes. And it's also a good source of a lot of micronutrients. All of that's really important to a garden or a farm. If you're looking, if you're looking at a plant-based compost as a fertilizer, there's no problem with that, except you're gonna need a lot of it because they tend to be pretty low in nitrogen um, and, and in all of the NPK elements. But they're still absolutely fabulous for the soil and crops overall. For the listener, NPK is nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. K is the uh, elemental symbol for potassium. And that trio is pretty standard uh, inorganic fertilizer. Right. Because those are essential nutrients that we know from organic fertilizer are already there. Right, right. And not that there aren't other critical ones like calcium, like sulfur, even even uh, copper, little tiny bits of copper. Iron. That, that's right, the, N, the NPK. So if you wanted a compost that you can also use as a fertilizer, probably going to be looking for a compost that involves animal manures because animal manures will bump up particularly the nitrogen and the phosphorus. Farmers used to put, and some still do, raw chicken manure on the farm. And that's so-called hot because it's got so much nitrogen, but it's also extremely volatile. So you can put chicken manure on the top of your farm, even till it in a little bit, and a lot of the nutrients will be lost in the first few rain events because it's huh. it's not in complex. Yes, it's very soluble. But if you take that same chicken poop and the waste from a chicken farm and you do a good job composting it by mixing it with wood chips and sawdust and leaves and other things, then you'll have something that is still very rich, very nitrogen rich, two to two to three percent, very phosphorus rich, little less so potassium, but it will be way more stable. And that's better because that means the nutrients won't leach out into somebody's groundwater or creek. And it also means the nutrients are available to the plants for many months instead of for a, a week or two. Here's the sort of tricky part is that most even good quality animal-based compost is coming from a big CAFO operation. The, the, the core material is from a big hog farm, a big chicken, a big turkey farm. It's coming from- Remind me what CAFO stands for. Confined animal feeding operations. So these are the, the operations where you might have 10,000 10, chickens in a house. Right. 2,000 hogs crammed together in spaces they can hardly move. Um, so it's, it's a mixed bag from an ethical point of view, but I will confess that I have used compost because we have one of those big egg laying operations just outside of Abingdon. And they, for a number of years, were actually doing a fantastic job of converting their waste, the chicken poop, feathers, even dead birds, mixing it all up and making actually a very high quality, very stable compost that I then used on my farm. I don't do it anymore, but I did for a number of years. So, you know, that's sort of, that's kind of a philosophical question. 
if you are somebody who doesn't buy meat and eggs and milk from a big industrial CAFO operation because you think it's bad for the animals, bad for the environment, bad for the workers, that's us. We don't buy meat and eggs and milk from those sorts of operations. But as a farmer, I still use some of their waste byproduct to enhance the health of my soil. Am I being hypocritical? Maybe. You know, it's sort of a six of one, half a dozen another kind of thing. But yeah, so that's in terms of compost, plant-based composts are very good, but they're not as nutrient dense. That's the short answer. Okay. All right. So so to summarize, uh, NPK is nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Um, nitrogen is essential in in uh, our proteins. So every amino acid of in your in any protein. Uh, contains nitrogen and any uh, nucleic, any nucleotide uh, for any part of any genome it, it contains nitrogen. So that's where the nitrogen goes and also to the chlorophyll for, for plants. Uh, phosphorus, um, phosphorus, it, it's going to be coming from minerals. Um, so it, when we think about phosphorus, it's not one of the main components of the air uh, or, or the water. So it's going to be a mineral. Um, and where is phosphorus in living systems? It's in, uh, in the phosphates of phosphate esters of sugar phosphate backbones of nucleotides. And it's in, right? And it's in all the cell, cell signaling, the energetic molecules like ATP going to ADP. And uh, so, so that's where we can think about phosphorus being essential and where it maybe comes from. But there's also phospholipids. There's phospholipids, and there's also phosphorylated proteins. Yep, that's right. So phosphorylation is a really important signaling system throughout biology. In your in any cell membrane, is going to have a phosphorus in it. So so that's essential. Where does where does the potassium come in? It's the sodium potassium gradient that that's neurotransmission. So you've, you've got to have a gradient set up where there's a separation from the inside of the cells to the outside of the cells between the amount of potassium and the amount of sodium. And then there are active pumps that pump them in different directions. And that's how you get neuro nerve transmission. There's probably a lot of other roles for... The plants don't have nerves, right? Yeah, I... I don't know if I don't think potassium is a structural element. I wonder if it was related to potassium for root growth and stem development, right? Yes, and potassium also is um, indicated in helping uh, plants fruit more. So if you're growing a fruiting plant, a tomato, a cantaloupe, or other things, um, the right you don't need tons of it, but optimum levels of potassium. Are and that's where we get potassium in our diet is from fruits and vegetables. Coming, coming back out from that. So that, that makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we tend to think, and it's an oversimplification because all of the major nutrients are important for all parts of the plant. But the, the way it's usually thought of is, is phosphorus is key for good root growth, uh, potassium for stems and buds or fruits, and then nitrogen for the leaf growth and, and the overall growth of the plant because with the, the nitrogen so important for the chlorophyll. So again, that's a simplification, but um, that is the way we think about it. And uh, unfortunately, again, the, the advent of 
chemistry in agriculture and, and the invention of processes that allowed us to, to make nitrogen, while it's boosted productivity tremendously, it's also helped us kind of skirt some of the practices like nitrogen fixing bacteria and legumes that can, that can make their own nitrogen. Or again, as I was preparing for our talk, reading a little bit about, we've put, we've put so much phosphorus fertilizer on farms in the West, in the US, the UK, Australia, Canada, we have been putting heavy levels of phosphorus with a lot of uh, water pollution problems as much of it runs off and feeds the algae blooms and all that. But the other thing is, you know, phosphorus is a very finite resource in terms of the rock, the rock deposits of it. And there are estimates that at our current rate of use, if we don't discover new sources, we will have exhausted most of the phosphorus between 50 and 100 years from now. So that's not very long. So some researchers started doing experiments in fields at the, in the UK and in England and the US. And they found there is all those years of dousing with high phosphorus fertilizer. It's, most soils now have a bank of phosphorus. So they found they could, they could get the same yield, some of them for over a decade with no additional phosphorus fertilizer, saw no phosphorus deficiency because we have this this storage of it in the soil. So that's kind of good news. But, but my point is that when we, because we've made farming easier in some respects by figuring out the chemistry of how we can create our own inorganic nitrogen and phosphorus, we've also created a lot of problems and, and, and overlooked ways to conserve and, and create sources of, of those nutrients ourselves, right? I, I was just going to say it, it's kind of hopeful from a uh, chemist's point of view to see more stories out about uh, about the companies that traditionally supply farmers with their pesticides and herbicides, these big chemical companies kind of seeing their role changing uh, from chemical suppliers to a to more of a service um, suppliers of a, of a service and the service being helping farmers monitor what they actually need for, uh, for good growth conditions. And so, so there've been a few stories out and see any news about that one was from just to point listeners to it, if they want to go find it, uh, February 10th, uh, of last year, an article from C and E news that's chemical and engineering news crop innovations can protect yields and improve food quality in a changing climate. And it talks about some of the some of the supplier companies and how they're how they're change, seeing their role change in that way. Um, let's talk about nitrogen a little bit. Um, and so people know that that uh, legumes fix nitrogen, but maybe they don't really quite understand what that means chemically. We've we've talked about it on this show. So nitrogen as N two as a gas molecule in the air is very chemically stable. Uh, and unusable for building things like proteins. Um, and so something needs to turn it from N2 into another uh, chemical form. And so that's usually ammonium. And it's not the actual legumes that, it's not the, the legume plant, the peanuts or whatever that fix that nitrogen. It's the bacteria that are in symbiosis with those plants. Um, and so you wanna talk about them a little bit? It's both of them because those same, those same rhizobium bacteria can't colonize the roots of a wheat plant or a tomato plant 
um, or a potato plant. They can only colonize the roots of a legume. So both parties are critical to it. So legumes, which we think of as peas, beans, um, also there are, of course, uh, the alfalfa, all the ranges of clovers and vetches, there's lots of different legumes, and there's leguminous trees. In our area, uh, one of the most common and, and best known trees is the, the thorny locust and the black locust, which are leguminous. So a legume, whether it's a garden pea, a string bean, or an alfalfa plant, has this particular symbiotic relationship, meaning a mutually beneficial relationship with this category of bacteria called rhizobium. And, and the rhizobium are naturally occurring in most soils. A lot of farmers like myself will inoculate their seeds, meaning coat the seeds with a little bit of a, a powdered form of the rhizobium when we're first getting started because it's sort of increases the population of rhizobium besides what's just in the soil. You don't have to do that, but you you get more, more of that. It's like taking probiotics for my gut. <laughs> yeah, something something like that. Yeah, you're giving it a little bit of a a little bit of a numerical advantage by coating the seeds. And it's just something you do at the time of planting. It it adds very little cost and uh, very little trouble to the process. Now if you get it, if you get legumes established, they, they vary in their nitrogen fixation abilities, but the best clovers, like the, the crimson clover I use in my winter mix um, and, and hairy vetch, they can fix, meaning pull at the, convert that atmospheric nitrogen into a usable form through their, their colonization of the roots. They can fix between 100 and 150 pounds of nitrogen per acre in a good stand. Now that's a lot of nitrogen. The, the recommendation for maximizing yields of corn, say sweet corn or even field corn is somewhere around 150 to 200 pounds of nitrogen per acre. So you, a good stand of legumes can largely replace the addition of inorganic nitrogen. Now you gotta get a good stand. You've gotta get good germination your, your rhizobium population, whether you introduce them or they're there has to be sufficient. But on my farm, several times we've dug up uh, leguminous plants and when they're at their peak. And you can see, you can't see the rhizobium, but you can but see- the nodules. You can see the nodules, these sort of voluptuous pink nodules that come off of the roots. And, and it's really quite marvelous to observe. But I, there was an experiment from USDA's, oh, I'm sorry, I was just gonna say there was an experiment that I used to quote years ago, it was done in the early 90s at USDA's Beltsville, Maryland Experiment Station. And they did, um, they did a red clover, um, a red clover winter cover crop, which they then killed and planted tomatoes into. And they did it for three years and they compared that with the same tomato varieties planted uh, on black plastic, which would be the standard recommendation using the recommended amount of uh, nitrogen fertilizer. And the legume patch out yielded the nitrogen fertilizer black plastic patch over the course of the three years. It was particularly uh, higher yielding during a drought year, 
but he, but all three years it outyielded the conventional. So all to say that if we started to use legumes a lot more, we could probably not completely eliminate, but dramatically reduce the amount of nitrogen. And farmers who are running cattle do the same thing by overseeding in their pasture with clovers and other legumes. And once they establish, they feed the fescue or the other grasses and the farmers no longer need to put so much nitrogen fertilizer on their pastures. So I, I wanted to um, remind, remind our listeners that these bacteria, the nitrogen fixing bacteria have an enzyme called nitrogenase and the nitrogenase enzyme is incredibly important. As Anthony just explained that, you know, 150 pounds per acre of nitrogen is a lot. And so this enzyme just is this little powerhouse that can take this incredibly stable dinitrogen molecule out of the air, pull it out of the air and change it into a chemical form that the bacteria and hence the plant can then use and then it becomes part of our DNA and, and proteins. Yeah, so the rhizobium, the, the bacteria, they exchange nutrients with the legumes and the legumes bring down to their roots photosynthates is, is, is the term and it just generally means the sugar. So the rhizobium bacteria are heterotrophs. They, don't, they are not photosynthesizing organisms. They respire like the rest of us. They need to get their, um, their carbon-based molecules from somewhere and they get it from the legume plants. Yes. And they are trading for nitrogen in some way. And that unique relationship is what we're in danger of, uh, what we're really threatening by en masse, the nitrogen fertilizer practices that we have. Right, because even, even farmers that are uh, planting legumes, if they fertilize with, with inorganic nitrogen, say ammonium nitrate or triple uh, 18 or something like that, um, while it doesn't necessarily directly kill the rhizobium, it suppresses their effectiveness. So they kind of some at some level they recognize, hey, we're not needed anymore, you know. We're, <laughs> and so they find that the amount of colonization and the amount of fixation, nitrogen fixation, declines with the addition of the nitrogen. So why would you replace that free nitrogen gathering process with one that has not only an upfront cost of purchase but other costs like? nitrous oxide that's contributing to global warming or excess nitrate that goes into the drinking water. You know, it's sort of a, it's sort of a silly thing. But, but the truth of it is that, you know, all of these practices, whether we're talking about the, the Salatin model of, um, of how you raise um, animals or whether you're talking about this kind of a practice on a farm, you know, they're more complex and they take more management and kind of more intentionality on the part of the operator. So, um, you know, I remember when we started, I'm gonna digress a bit here, but when we started the Appalachian Harvest Food Hub 20 years ago in 2000, and we started recruiting tobacco farmers to grow organic fruits and vegetables, and we found a few that were interested and became great farmers. But I remember it was commonplace 
that when we explained to them that this that we had this market for organic vegetables, they would say, okay, if I can't put on 10, 10, 10, what fertilizer can I put on? Um, or if I can't spray seven or dust with seven, what can I use to kill the bugs? So there is a, we have kind of created an input mentality among a lot of farmers. And so we had to help the farmers understand that it wasn't just substituting organic inputs for, for so-called chemical inputs or conventional, but it was sort of looking at the whole health of the farm, you know, and it's, it's, not, it's not an easy sell because, because we were talking about something that took longer, that took a little more work, that took a little more understanding. It's an engineering solution uh, rather than a, you know, farmers grow things and chemical suppliers make and sell chemicals. And that's the interaction. It's, it's putting some engineering thought into, well, why do you input what you input? You know, there's a growing field called uh, chemical alternatives assessment. I think it was the National Research Council just a few years ago, they started a professional society around that because there's this gap between green chemists who think in terms of, well, what new chemistry can we come up with? And then implementation, uh, you know, what, what are these chemicals used for and what regulations, you know, are they sold and used within? And, and how can we, from a systems point of view, what do we actually need? And, or can we change our inputs based on changing our practices, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, like chemical suppliers traditionally are not thinking so much about, about optimizing practices. They're thinking about optimizing selling you. I wanted, I wanted to ask you about your inputs too. Um, do, when you plant these cover crops, do you buy the seed or do you save the seed from prior years or how, how does that work? No, I buy the seed. I buy the seed. There, there's a real seed saving movement going on and some of the farmers at the farmers market actually save they actually uh, save seeds for their own use but save them to sell to companies that are looking for seeds but um, seed saving I mean it can be lucrative but it also takes a level of management because you have to isolate to make sure you don't get cross-pollination whether whether you're trying to save an heirloom bean seed or cover crop seed so I just buy it and, and the truth is it's cheap, it's cheap. So I, hmm. I put on rye and clover on not all of my fields cause I didn't have them all prepped, but probably, um, probably 75% of my fields this early October, I got on rye and, and clover and we have a very good stand of it now. And I probably spent about $90 on all the seed that I needed for all of these fields from a local wow. purveyor called Country Boy Seeds, which is which is right here in town. And so now, of course, if I had a thousand acres, it would be a different expense. But relatively speaking, on my scale, it's a very, very small cost to have that. The, the tricky part is timing again, because if you if it's too wet, in the fall and you can never get in there to plant the seeds and get them sort of into the surface of the ground and you have to wait and wait and wait it may get too late for that for that cover crop but so you have you have like with everything with farming you you have so many weather issues but if you can have a little bit of luck it's very inexpensive it's very quick to do and that will be kind of dormant 
through January and February. It's, it's up about three to four inches right now, but we come late February, early March when it starts to warm up and they will take off. And by the end of April, 1st of May, they'll be head high, will be a tremendous biomass. The bees will be buzzing in the clover blooms. I'll have little bits of weeds here and there, but very few because their growth will have smothered out most of the weeds. And then when I bush hog that and, and either strip till in bits or kill it with the plastic, it's, it's incredible what the soil looks like underneath there because as those, that root mass dies, it's just, it's just extraordinary. But I was just wondering if you really need like a pure species for your purposes or if you could let it I don't know. You know, I'm not a farmer at all. I'm in, in, t- in fact, I have a brown thumb. I'm a terrible gardener. Um, a lot of chemicals. So, so, <laughs> so I, um, I wondered if you could just let it go to seed and then just sort of cut it down and, and put that right back on, or if that doesn't work. I do that with some. Um, I do that, for instance, with buckwheat. Buckwheat grows so quickly. It will, it will reach a mature height, which is about three and a half feet or so in about 35 days. And then, oh. and then it, it's flowering, fully flowering at that point, attracting bees like crazy and other beneficials. And then it'll start to form its seeds. And so typically I'm growing buckwheat in between other stuff. Let's say I've finished my harvest of broccoli in an area from the spring. I, I'm not quite ready to plant beans or, or peppers or something in that patch. So I plant buckwheat, let it grow up real quick. When I knock that buckwheat down before I plant the next crop, those seeds will grow. And I don't mind a bit because buckwheat is not invasive. Buckwheat grows rapidly, but, so, but some cover crops like the clovers can be very invasive. So you, if, if you let them go, they can be very invasive. They can start to take over. And then they become almost like a weed, even though they're a good plant. You you don't want you're not selling clover, you're selling cantaloupes, you know. So um, so you have to be careful with the cover crops that you you manage them. But but some of them like buckwheat. I do the same also for the cow peas, the southern peas, which are a great nitrogen fixer, a summer nitrogen crop. I'll just let them go to seed, and some of those seeds will germinate new plants, and and it's not a problem because the frost in the fall will kill them. So I just wanted to talk about oxygen and water. So one of the things that um, people don't know, um, but it's, it's kind of obvious we know that water as clouds actually traps heat. So a cloudy day is warmer. So water is a greenhouse gas. And Plants fix water too. Yeah, good point. Besides fixing carbon and nitrogen, so I just wanted to to add that on to our list of th- good things. Yeah, you've got to have that water in the soil, and and that water becomes part of the carbohydrates and all of the organic molecules. And I'll just say that from a from a point of view of a vegetable farmer. Um, Water is like your best friend and your worst enemy because <laughs> it seems it seems like the norm is too little or too much. And never just enough. <laughs> never just enough. I, I joke that one of the few perks of farming is you can 
always complain about the weather, but in truth, it's a real issue. And, and our area, I mean, I've been farming now for like close to 25 years and we are much wetter now than we were when I was, you know, farming in the late nineties and the early two thousands. It's, I think this last year, Abingdon had 57 or 58 inches of rain. We've had several years of over 50 inches of rain. We had one year at 71 inches in an area that the historical norm is about 41 or 42 inches. That extra water, of course it's good for plant growth, but it's, it's tremendous for fungal growth. And, and there's a lot of good fungi, but there's some bad ones out there that spread disease in your plants. But the biggest issue is what it does to the ability to work the ground to plant. And waterlogged soil is soil that's deprived of oxygen and soil where even the hardiest cool weather plants will die from all, there's all kinds of root-borne diseases that in a waterlogged soil. So one of the other benefits of this kind of farming when your organic matter goes up into the five and 6%, you still can have too much water. But the amazing thing about organic matter is it both holds water when it's dry, it doesn't give it up easily. So you have a store of water that your plants can draw on, but it also helps water move through down to the next layer. So it's kind of magical in that sense. It, it helps you with the extremes of too much or too little water. So while it's not the whole answer, that's one of the biggest reasons I really encourage farmers to build up their organic matter is because it does keep that balance between soil oxygen and soil moisture much better. Great. Yeah, it, keep, it, it builds structure into the soil and structure means that it can be not quite so dense. It doesn't get so compacted. There's little, little capillaries, they call them, just like in us, that, that the air and the water and the roots move through. So I think we're going to wrap up. Um, I just wanted to uh, let you know that if you want to uh, follow Anthony on YouTube, he's got a channel called Take Five with Tony. Uh, he has a recent book out called Building a Healthy Economy from the Bottom Up, Harnessing Real World Experience for Transformative Change. Um, Anthony, thank you so much for coming on our little fun. show here. And uh, Same thank to you. you. Happy thank New you Year. so much. You bet. Thanks to both of you. Goodbye. Bye, ciao. Jamie, I wanted to go try to find my, my haiku book. Okay. Phosphorus. Report, Willie Pete. Don't hide behind a smoke screen. How many killed, maimed? Willie Pete is a nickname for white phosphorus, an allotrope of phosphorus that burns fiercely sometimes employed in smoke grenades. It was used in incendiary weapons in both world wars, the Vietnam War and more recent conflicts. So this has been This Week in Sustainability. And we had Anthony Flacavento and had a wonderful conversation with Anthony about um, soil carbon sequestration and how he manages that as an organic farmer but also uh, managing soil nitrogen and how uh, inorganic fertilizer can actually be self-defeating because it, it makes the um, rhizobium bacteria less able to sequester nitrogen from the air. It was, it was just a wonderful conversation. We talked about all kinds of 
different soil inputs and cover crops. Yeah, really, the uh, the nitrogen conversation makes me think about, you know, everybody has heard for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So you, if you add nitrogen to soil, well, that's going to make the nitrogen fixing organism uh, and the photosynthesizing organism less dependent on each other. Right. And, and it's sort of, um, there's this chemical principle called Le Chatelier's principle. And if you dump in too much nitrogen on one side, you're basically shifting it away from what you want it to do. It's really the idea of things being in balance. In balance in chemistry is equilibrium. Okay, I guess that's all I have. This has been uh, January 3rd, this week in sustainability. Thanks for listening. Uh, it's reminding you to think about things. Don't think too hard about them, but think about it. Thank you, Jamie. Good night. Thank you, Felicia.